Listen. Just listen. I'm Julie Ganey, and you're listening to the Second Story Podcast. Second Story is a hybrid performance series of stories, wine, and music, a collaboration among writers, actors, musicians, and others to create good stories and good times. The stories are written by the performers themselves, sometimes funny, sometimes poignant, always thought-provoking. And now, Second Story storytellers Julia Borschertz and Max Glasner. When I was six years old, my family and I lived right next to the Connecticut border. The WWF headquarters was in Stamford, and every time we drove down the highway, I could see the logo at the top of the building from the window of our minivan, and I'd beg my dad to please take the exit. What I wanted to know was, do the wrestlers really hang out in there? Since my dad wouldn't stop, and there was only one way to know for sure, I grabbed the yellow pages, found the listing, and pounded the digits into my parents' phone. World Wrestling Federation. Yes, hello. I'd like to speak to The Undertaker, please. (laughs) She paused, and I could tell that she was laughing. I'm sorry, little guy, but The Undertaker, he doesn't have his own office. But you can send him fan mail at click. The operator was a nice lady, but she couldn't understand. I didn't want to write The Undertaker a letter. I wanted to hang out with him in his hearse. The wrestling world was filled with excitement and costumes and pyrotechnics, and a hearse is way cooler than a minivan. Fast forward five years. I'm 11, and my dad and I are at my first live wrestling show. It's a WWF pay-per-view event called the Survivor Series. The arena feels enormous to me, like I'm just a tiny dot in some giant chasm. The ring is huge and intimidating. Even the folding chair I'm sitting in with the custom cushion feels large enough to swallow me whole. Then the bright lights come on and all 20,000 people are screaming. I wave my Undertaker foam finger, which is bigger than my head. Everything in this place is about a thousand times bigger than me and I love it. The guys are even bigger in real life than they look on TV, like giant tattooed monsters. I stand on my chair and point my foam finger in the air because I want to be best friends with all of them. The opening bout is an eight-man tag match, and it's hard to focus my attention in any one place. Although this one guy, Skip, is kind of cracking me up. I've seen Skip on TV before. He has popping muscles, a dark bronze tan, his hair is bleach blonde, and he always wears a bright blue unitard. He's one of the bad guys, so that's pretty cool. It's just that his gimmick is kind of gay or something. See, along with his girl manager, Sonny, Skip is one half of the Body Donnas, which means he's all obsessed with fitness. For example, in the ring right now, instead of pinning his opponent like he's supposed to, He shows off by doing five jumping jacks. Or when his partner is trying to tag him in, he's busy taunting the fans by doing push-ups on the ring apron. The people in my section boo him. Sonny, the manager, gets a lot of whistles and catcalls. But for the most part, no one really cares. Skip's team wins mostly by cheating, but his victory is about as forgettable as the match itself. 
Next up is The Undertaker, who enters like he's the master of darkness. First, the whole arena goes black. The people around me click lighters, and the whole place starts to sparkle like there are little fireflies in the air. And then, looming at six foot ten and a half, he emerges from behind the curtain and makes his entrance down the aisle. He moves slowly like an animated corpse through plumes of purple smoke. A swampy veil of hair hangs in front of his eyes, and it's this sort of mystery that makes me excited. Once this show is through, I want to follow the wrestlers back behind the curtain, back to wherever it is that they go. I'd even like to talk to Skip, except with someone like The Undertaker around, it's kind of hard to think about Skip at all. So, 10 years later, Max and I are speeding down the Dan Ryan Expressway to Indiana for a wrestling show. I am a little suspicious because while I believe that this new boyfriend of mine is heterosexual, his interest in this so-called sport is making me nervous. For one thing, he has a collection of autographed promotional pictures featuring buff, tanned, oiled, and waxed wrestlers posing in what can only be described as fetish wear. There's The Undertaker, shirtless and in leather pants. There's Bret Hart in hot pink RoboCop sunglasses. And some dude from Lucha Libre wearing assless chaps and a rhinestone cowboy hat. (laughs) I look up from the road and over at Max for reassurance. With his leather jacket and porn star mustache, he looks like he's ready to audition for the village people. (laughs) He pats me on the knee. It's gonna be so much fun, he says. I smile back, but I don't think I'm going to like this showcase with its larger-than-life B-grade superhero characters. I don't need their fake soap opera scenarios. I have enough real-life drama with my mother. (laughs) People who don't know her well say she's battling cancer. But my mother is not a fighter. She's a quitter. She keeps abandoning her chemo treatments, and she won't eat right or drink water, which would help minimize the side effects. The thing that gives me hope is that she still takes immense pride in her appearance. Every morning she gets up and puts on designer slacks, a nice sweater, her makeup, and her wig, which is dark brown with short fluffy curls and a sweep of bangs across the forehead. But now the cancer has spread into her brain. Three weeks ago she was driving to McDonald's for an Egg McMuffin and realized halfway there that she'd forgotten to put on her wig. Two days later she got dizzy and fell off the toilet. And last week, while we were playing Scrabble, she had a small seizure. She's supposed to have radiation treatments, but sometimes when I go to pick her up, she won't get in the car because she's too tired to get dressed. Max squeezes my hand. And I squeeze back and smile because I know that he's planned this little adventure to cheer me up. But Max is younger than I am, and he doesn't realize that I don't want an escape into a fantasy world. I want a real-life way to teach my mom how to fight back. We walk into the elementary school gym in Valparaiso, Julia and me. I am holding her hand, close to me, as if to reassure her that she won't grow a mullet on her head just for being here. The woman who collects our tickets is as bulldogish as any super heavyweight wrestler, though she smiles at us. She's seen me here at IWA before, so we know each other a little. She is the wife of Ian Rotten the veteran hardcore wrestler who runs this tiny promotion. 
With a hamhock arm, she gestures to the ring. Show starts in five minutes, she says, so y'all may want to find some seats. <laughs> Seating in a grade school gymnasium is not exactly ample. There are four rows of steel chairs set up on each side of the ring. Wrestlers use a kindergarten classroom for their dressing room, and instead of entering the ring through a mysterious curtain, they open the clunky doors to the gym. We grab a seat next to an old man in a wheelchair who has a urine catheter attached to his leg and oxygen tubes threading through his beard into his nose. There are rednecks in PBR blue jean vests, big-haired moms caring for whole litters of freckle-faced kids, younger black dudes with piles of bling around their necks, and skinny hipsters in black-rimmed glasses who grew up on a steady diet of comic books and Hulkamania. Everyone paid 10 bucks to get in. The wrestlers may get half the take, if they're lucky. The show starts when Ian makes his entrance to The Beautiful People by Marilyn Manson, and everyone, even Julia, stomps their feet. Ian Rotten is hard to miss. He's close to 400 pounds with a forehead that's covered in scar tissue from his time as a deathmatch champion in Japan. Ian throws a kendo stick into the ring, then carefully climbs through the ropes, which tonight are lined with barbed wire. He rips off a t-shirt which reads, Chicks Love Scars, to reveal pierced, pasty white titties that look more like skewered cow udders, <laughs> as well as a slew of additional scars. Ian holds up his hands to the audience to reveal a glove on his right face, fist that's made of tape and bits of broken glass. A crackling rendition of Back in Black by ACDC rips over the PA system, and out comes Ian Rotten's opponent in skimpy black wrestling trunks with short-cropped bleach blonde hair and a smooth fake tan that even Fabio would envy. I know I've seen this guy before, but... I can't exactly remember where. The ring announcer says his name is Chris Candido. <laughs> but I still can't place him. Then it hits me, like a steroid overdose, right to the brain. Hey baby, I know this guy, I say to Julia. She looks at me with narrowed eyes, like I just admitted that we used to rub oil all over each other's chests. <laughs> And how do you know him, she asks me? Do you tan together? I start to explain that he used to be known as Skip, the insane fitness instructor from the Body Donnas duo. But Candido and Ian Rotten are already trading fake blows that to me look kind of real, that Julia does not think look kind of real, but she still looks like she's having fun. Candido grabs Ian's kendo stick and cracks him over the skull. Then he takes Ian's face and presses it into the barbed wire ropes. Ian screams and pulls on the barbed wire to make it look like he's trying to get it out of his forehead, when really, he's digging it in deeper and his head starts dripping blood. The ref orders Candido to break the hold, so Ian throws an elbow into Candido's groin. And by the time Ian digs his glass-taped fist into Candido's forehead, I'm officially hooked. I realize now that Candido and Skip are not really the same person. In the WWF, they didn't give him a chance to entertain. I have to wonder what it must be like to wrestle at the peak of your career for an audience of less than 100, to bleed in a grade school gymnasium for peanuts, when just 10 years ago, this guy was wrestling for a real salary in front of a crowd of 20,000. 
They're leaving the ring, somebody yells as Ian tosses Candido across all four rows of chairs. The crowd is on their feet, surrounding the two brawlers, drenching each other's blood like the Center for Disease Control's worst nightmare, trading chest chops while people take pictures on their cell phones. Moments later, Candido drags a wooden table out from under the ring. He climbs right up there and slams Ian headfirst through the table with a pile driver. The ref counts to three, and I feel like I'm a kid again, witnessing it all for the first time. After the match, I see Candido signing autographs at a table in back. Julia is phoning a neighbor to check up on her mom. She nods, and I go. I saw you wrestle as Skip when I was just a kid! It's a bad opening line, but Candido laughs and shakes my hand. It is a very big hand. He could crush me with it if he wanted to. I didn't like that character Skip very much, he says. When I joined the WWF, I was so excited to be a part of the big league, but they had me doing jumping jacks. I was such a joke. Yeah, well, your match tonight was the shit. You fucking owned Ian Rotten's crazy ass. Candido rubs a washcloth over his head cut. What's your name, man? I'm I'm a Max. Hey, thanks, Max. I'm going to sign you one of these pictures here. If you liked what you saw tonight, you should check out my match at Lockdown on pay-per-view. I'm going to face Apollo inside a six-sided steel cage. All right, man. I'll watch you for sure. All right. Best wishes, Max. I take Julia by the arm, and we head out into the night. Nice guy, that Chris Candido. I say to her as we sit on the Dan Ryan. Did you have a good time? I really did. I was a little concerned about Max's fascination with Chris Candido and his patent leather Speedo. But the excitement and energy really did take my mind off my troubles. But three days later, when I went to take my mom for her radiation treatment, I found her collapsed on the carpeted floor in her green satin pajamas with her legs trailing behind her, smelling of Chanel Number no. 5, but also of urine, too weak to get up. I threw myself down on the floor, and as I pulled my phone out of my purse, I noticed gray hair struggling to grow out of her scalp, and I realized that it was the first time in years I'd seen her without her wig. I tried to help her up, but she had no strength in her arms or legs, and it felt like I was dragging 100 pounds of concrete. I punched in 911 and told the operator, I need an ambulance. My mother twisted away from me. I'm not going to the hospital. I gave the operator the address and told my mother, I can't lift you. Call Jenny next door. She can help you carry me back to bed. But then what? She struggled to sit up, but her legs wobbled and she fell over, knocking me into the wall. I crawled out from under her and stood up. All right, she said, but help me change my pajamas and get me my wig. I'm not going out in public without it. I followed the ambulance to the emergency room. She had a perforated ulcer poisoning her system. The ER doctor handed her the consent forms and said, the surgeon should be here within the hour, and it's good that you came when you did. Tomorrow would have been too late. My mother piped up from her gurney. I'm not having surgery. I grabbed her hand, but it felt cold. Don't you understand? It's not an option. I'm, it's not going to fix me, and I don't want to go through it. I found a loose thread on her white blanket and picked at the edge. But you'll die right here if you don't. She lowered her dark eyes and chewed on her pale lip. All right, she said, 
and I held her hand while the orderly wheeled her bed up to the surgical floor. No one else was having surgery that night, so I sat in the waiting room alone. After the third loop of identical CNN programming, I picked up a National Geographic magazine. There was a story on lady luchadors, rural Bolivian housewives who rustle in petticoats and bowler hats. They were poor, but passionate, and it made me think of Chris Candido, who was so excited about being able to perform that he didn't care that there were less than 100 people to see it. And it made me wish that my mom could be even half that interested in anything about life. Around 5 a.m., the surgeon came out to say that she had survived, but that her cancer was so widespread that he wasn't sure it had been a good idea. I thanked him anyway and walked down to the recovery room. She was still asleep, but she was wearing her wig. That's right, she went through surgery in a wig. As I sat down by the window and watched the sun come up, I realized that maybe all these attempts on my part to force her through chemotherapy, through radiation, through a surgery that wasn't going to cure her, just buy me a little more time, weren't working because they were more for my benefit than hers. You can't want something for another person more than they want it for themselves. Chris Candido had surgery too, and his wasn't such a good idea either. One morning after Julia left to visit her mom in the nursing home, I realized I'd missed Candido's pay-per-view match with Apollo and fired up the computer to check my favorite website, obsessedwithwrestling.com. <laughs> Turns out he lost the match, according to plan, but not according to plan. He fractured his tibia and fibula and dislocated his ankle. A few days later, he collapsed, either from a blood clot or a staph infection. By the time I looked up the match's outcome, he was dead. On the last day of my mother's life, I left the nursing home at the crack of dawn to take a shower at Max's house. When I got back, 90 minutes later, she was still asleep. Nursing home regulations insist that residents wear street clothes during daylight hours, and apparently this is true even if you've slipped into a coma, because the CNA had been in to dress her that morning, sort of. She was lying on top of the bed with no covers, wearing her wig, her favorite green sweater, and a diaper. I stomped out to the nurse's station. Who left my mother on, this, on her bed in a diaper for all the world to see? A middle-aged nurse with a tight perm and blue plastic glasses looked up from her chart. She's more comfortable without slacks, and it's easier to change her diaper that way. Could you at least get her a goddamn blanket? Around noon, she took her last breath. The nurse with the plastic glasses came in to tell me that transport was on its way. She paused at the door, and her face softened. Do you want to take her wig with you, she said. They'll have to take it off at the morgue, and they may lose it. My mother would not want to be seen lying there without her wig, and it was the last chance I'd have to spare her dignity. But I couldn't remember if she had another wig in decent shape at home. And it would be terrible if I had to buy a new one for the funeral and couldn't get the hairdo right. So I kissed my mom and told her that I loved her. And then I lifted her head up and slipped the wig off and smoothed down the few stunted tufts of gray hair. And after the attendants took her away, I packed up her belongings and went back to her house. I carried the suitcase into her walk-in closet, which still smelled like Chanel Number no. 5. 
On the shelf above her dresses were three styrofoam wig heads, all bedecked with identical dark brown wigs. To the right were six small boxes with brand new wigs folded inside, waiting to take over when the old ones wore out. When I get home, Max is waiting on the step. He stands up, and as I walk into his arms, I think, maybe he's right. Maybe it's better not to obsess about the things you can't control. Maybe sometimes it really is better to escape. And so, as he leads me to the step to sit down, I ask him, would you tell me a story? Sure. Did I ever tell you about the time I called up The Undertaker? <laughs> well, when I was six years old, my family and I lived right next to the Connecticut border. WWF headquarters. That was Julia Borschertz and Max Glasner. If their story gave you ideas for your own second story, we'd love to hear them. Please join us for our ongoing series at Webster's Wine Bar and the Morseland, or one of our upcoming special events. On July 25th, join us at the Stained Glass Bistro in Evanston. Visit our website for more details. Second Story Podcast is brought to you by Amanda Delheimer, Megan Steelstra, Shannon Sullivan, Miles Pulaski, Mikhail Fixel, and Nick Kawahara. I'm Julie Ganey. Serendipity is funded in part by the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency, the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, City Arts Grants, the Chicago Community Foundation, a part of the Chicago Community Trust, the Arts Work Fund, and listeners just like you. To find out more about Second Story, the performances, and our performers, or to make a donation, visit us at secondstory.com. Yeah.